Psalm 107, verses 17 to 43. This is the inerrant and infallible word of the Lord. Fools, because of their rebellious way and because of their iniquities, were afflicted. Their soul abhorred all kinds of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distress. He sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. Let them also offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his works with joyful singing. Those who go down in the sea in ships who do business on great waters, they have seen the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he spoke and raised up a stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. They rose up to the heavens. They went down to the depths. Their soul melted away in their misery. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' ends. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He caused the storm to be still so that the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad because they were quiet, so he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people, and praise him at the seat of the elders. He changes rivers into wilderness and springs of water into a thirsty ground, a fruitful land into salt waste because of the wickedness of those who dwell in it. He changes a wilderness into a pool of water and dry land into springs of water, and there he makes the hungry to dwell so that they may establish an inhabited city and sow fields and plant vineyards and gather a fruitful harvest. Also he blesses them and they multiply greatly. And he does not let their cattle decrease. When they are diminished and bowed down, though oppression, misery, and sorrow, he pours contempt upon princes and makes them wander in pathless waste. But he sets the needy securely on a high, away from affliction. And he makes his families like a flock. The upright see it and are glad, but all unrighteousness shuts its mouth. Who is wise? Let him give heed to these things and consider the loving kindness of the Lord. Thus ends the reading of the Word of God. Please open to the book of Jonah, chapter 2. Jonah, chapter 2. So here now, we pick up where we left off, verse 17, chapter 1, which in the Hebrew Bible begins chapter 2, actually, which reads, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. And then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish. And he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice, for you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, And the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its its bars was around me forever, but you 
have brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. But I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Let's bow for a moment of prayer. Father, once again, we stand in your presence in need of guidance and direction anointing by the power of your spirit to enable me to communicate your truth to your people. Also for your glory, for the benefit and growth of their faith as they grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. May we all grow in such a manner. And Lord, anyone here who doesn't know you this morning, that you do not have a living relationship with through your son Jesus Christ, may today be the day of their awakening. New life granted in Christ by the resident presence of the Holy Spirit accessing you, the Father, for salvation. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Now, what is it that is the most striking news of Jonah chapter 2? What is it that's most amazing about this chapter? What's most amazing about this book? It's not that a man was swallowed by a fish. Okay, we're moving out of second grade Sunday school now. Amen? It's not that a man was swallowed by a fish, but it's this, that salvation is of who? Of the Lord. It's not of man. Man has nothing to do with it. Salvation is of Yahweh. The man in the story is not an unbeliever. The man in the story is not some idol worshiper of some false god or gods. This is a man who has faith in the one true living God, who nevertheless at this point in time was living in blatant rebellion against God. He was on the run, attempting to flee from the presence of God. Are you on the run today from God? Do you know all about this God? Do you know him personally and yet you're on the run from his will? Jonah was on the run. And Jonah was on the run due to the fact that God's plan didn't line up with his approval. The plan of God didn't line up with Jonah's approval, and that was to go, to go preach and preach a message of judgment to Assyria. The Ninevites. You know those cruel people. And in response to the command, he defiantly departs, making his way to a ship destined to go 2,000 miles in the opposite direction of the call. He pays his fare. He goes down to the lower parts of the ship. He falls fast asleep. And he never, ever arrives at his anticipated destination. 
The great, the late great Donald Gray Barnhouse said this, quote, This is what happens when you run away from God. You always pay your own fare and never get where you want to go. End quote. But this kind of defiance is not unfamiliar to many of God's own people throughout time to this very day. Perhaps in this very room, at this very moment. Any one of us are able to sin in like manner. None of us are exempt from such defiance. We may plan and we may conspire against the will of God, the commanded will of God, but all to no avail, beloved. You will never conspire against God's sovereign will. You will never prevail against His sovereign will. But I'll tell you what, if you think you can prevail against His commanded will, you will soon be awakened, as was Jonah. I say <laughs> to myself as well. Proverbs 19.20 says, Many plans are in, in man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. Stand. Proverbs 21.30, No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. Such defiance actually causes us to think that we are able to frustrate the plans of God. And in our sinful defiance, we will begin to think in our minds, fooling no one else but ourselves, that we can frustrate God's plan and His will for my life. I'll get Him to change His mind. I will conform Him into my image. But God says through the prophet Isaiah, chapter 14, verse 27, For the Lord of hosts has planned. Who can frustrate it? And as for his stretched out hand, who can turn it back? Answer, no one, no thing. Why? Isaiah says again, chapter 46, verse 9, For I am God, there is no other. I am God, there's no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established, I will accomplish all my good pleasure, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly, I have spoken. Truly, I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely, I will do it. Any questions? God's sovereign purposes will not be thwarted, frustrated, changed. Man's counsel and his considerations against the Lord are nothing but folly and futile in the end. It is possible to live a Christian life experiencing the deep satisfaction of an obedient life. And if you're a Christian here this morning, you know the joy that there is by abiding in Christ, walking in obedience to the will of God, obeying by grace and mercy for His glory and your good. You know that glorious experience. Only sometimes to be enticed by our own sin where, not unlike Jonah, we say, no to God. About ready to use poor English here. Ain't going to do it. Ain't going to do it, God. 
But soon after, we begin to realize that it gets easier and easier to say no to God. The next time we say no, there's less conviction. We become more calloused. Time after time, until months pass, or perhaps even years pass, we continue on making our own plans, while all the while attempting to expel God from our minds. To the point that menacing pride sets in. Hindering our repentance. Producing shame and sorrow. No doubt about it. We're full of shame and sorrow because we are God's children. Because we are a blood-bought Christian. Covered by the blood of the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the earth. Having been born again from above. A child of God. An eternal relationship. Therefore there's shame. Therefore there's guilt. But... This sorrow that we have at this time in unrepentance is concerned with nothing but self. And that the Bible calls worldly sorrow. And according to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, worldly sorrow always inevitably leads to death. Death. Death of discernment. Death to maturity. Death to depth and understanding of God. Death to relationships. Death to correct thinking. Death to a biblical mindset. But just like Jonah, those who truly belong to God will not, again, those who truly belong to God will not prevail in their defiance. And we ought to praise God for that. For God, who utilizes whatever measures he sees fit, will put his children back on the path of faithfulness and submission, even though the chastisement that he brings forth upon us may very well bring his own people to the very point of death. Death. That's what our beloved brother Jonah is facing. Because God loves him so much. Jonah came to the place of actually wanting to die, if you remember, rather than repenting and obeying. When the crew asked what might calm the storm, Jonah said, I tell you what, pick me up, throw me into the sea, and I guarantee you the sea will be calm for you. Verse 12, chapter 1. Now it's baffling to me why Jonah is willing to die for the sake of these pagan sailors. Chapter 1, verse 12, when a few weeks later he enters in to Nineveh and he's angry because God saves the lives of 120,000 pagan Ninevites. But then again, Defiant anger towards God is always reasonable in the mind of the rebellious. Can I get a witness? <laughs> this defiant prophet, he attempted to outmaneuver God. You can't box with God. He has the reach. He has the advantage. 
You ever see a short guy who weighs the same as a tall guy and they're in a boxing match? Who has the advantage in the ring? The guy with the long reach. That's why they measure reach. The only guy that could really conquer were a couple guys, Rocky Marciano, who knocked every, almost every opponent out, and Mike Tyson. Didn't matter how tall you were. He was like a machine. He'd just knock you out. Other than that, usually the guy with the reach has the advantage. When you're messing with God, he always has the advantage and he'll always win. Always. So after running in the opposite direction of God's clear, commanded will, God sends a storm to chasten Jonah. And he desires to die rather than to obey. I had a relative of mine who was told, do not marry that man. She said, I'll go to hell to marry that man. That is a fool. In her folly. And that's the stupidity that is always becoming of disobedience. Pastor, you shouldn't say stupid. We teach our kids not to use the word stupid. The Bible says, Proverbs 12, verse 1, whoever loves discipline, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge. He who hates reproof is stupid. (laughs) Stupid. You know, some people are simply unteachable, beloved. They cannot handle constructive criticism. They cannot handle reproof. They are unable to see the flaws in themselves, the sin in themselves, the carnality in themselves. But the Bible says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Faithful. A friend of mine played in the NFL. He's been to two Super Bowls. He's an athlete, to say the least. He coaches kids football. He tells me story after story after story of parents, fathers in particular, who are so duped, foolish, to think that their son is the next Brett Favre. My friend shakes his head. He goes, brother, your, your son can't even throw a ball. And you're treating him like he's the next breast farm. Yeah, hope is great, but brother, he doesn't have the talent. I had a kid growing up. He had his folks so fooled. They thought, you know, he, his, his nickname was Sunshine. Hello, Sunshine. Because he'd sing songs and run around the house so chipper and happy in front of mom and dad. But little Junior could do no wrong. But outside of mom and dad, he was the most manipulative person I knew behind their backs. But you're not going to tell them otherwise. They hate reproof. So we see it's biblically stupid to hate and reject reproof. Jonah didn't accept the reproof of Almighty God until he was drowning, sinking to death. Now, at first he was more than glad to die until he was actually facing the reality of death. That's when it wakes people up, amen? You're raised in the truth, you're groomed in the truth, you're catacized in the truth. And then, well, now I'm in college. I'm just going to go live my life, boy. I love the world. And then it's until you're facing the impossible. God uses it to wake you up. So it took God's severe judgment to bring this man's defiance to an end. 
in order that this man would recognize his mutiny, the mutiny that was coming forth from him against the captain of our salvation, the father of our faith, God. Now, last time we were together, we left Jonah drowning while pagan sailors offered sacrifice to the one true God. So we pick up here in verse 17, chapter 1. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. So the cause of Jonah's distress, drowning in the sea, that's what his distress was, was the very hand of God. Here now was the judgment of God, the raging ocean. Now, having been cast overboard and then rescued by a great fish, which, by the way, was prepared by God, notice, and the Lord appointed a great fish or prepared a great fish, your translation may say, and the the word prepared could mean that God created this fish for this purpose. It could mean that. But the word does not always mean creation. But it's also translated numbered or appointed. God appointed this big old fish to swallow this rebel. So the entire affair is the work of of, of Almighty God. A storm appointed by God. A man cast into the sea as an appointed fish just happened to swim under the boat at just the right time and swallow just the right object. Appointed by God keeping him inside for three days and three nights and then vomiting him out on dry land as appointed by God, as commanded by God. So God appointed a storm, God appointed a fish to bring Jonah back, one of his own, to bring that man back to the place that God wanted him to be. And guess what? You will get there. (laughs) One way or another. If you're his. Now, this fish, about the fish. There's no need for me to attempt to stand here and define what kind of fish this was because the Bible doesn't say. Amen? The Bible doesn't say. There's no need for me to spend time proving that there are fish capable today of swallowing men. And within the last 150 years, six men have been swallowed. I've heard men spend 45 minutes in their sermon just, really, there's fish that can do this. Okay? I want you to believe the word here. Uh, God can do this, I guess. I mean, let's look back at 1856. You see, oftentimes unsettled Christians, nervous Christians want to embrace theory in order to give credibility to the Bible. So they say, well, you know, that story about Jonah, it's pretty embarrassing when I'm around my unbelieving friends. So we'll call it a proverbial story. It's just there to teach us some lessons. It's not historic. I mean, after all, what man could survive for three days in a fish? It's like Christians who are intimidated as they sit in their university classrooms with their mocking professors. Or they sit watching the Discovery Channel, and every time they hear, eight billion years ago, God caused, or there was a catastrophic bang, they don't even talk about God. So in response, 
Christians, they, 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 they wring their hands and they attempt to redefine what the Bible says in plain language about a literal six-day creation. By the way, regarding Genesis, here at this church, we believe Genesis is a straightforward, literal presentation of the historical events that it describes, that it defines. Therefore, we teach clearly and without shame that God created everything in a literal six-day format. He spoke, and it came into being. There was morning, there was evening, the first day. Amen? So therefore, we reject every form of theistic evolution. And if you're foolish enough to believe in evolution, and you are foolish if you do, don't you dare blame it on God. Okay? Okay. Because people mock the fact that Jesus hasn't come back yet. Because I fear them. And I fear what they think. Jesus said he'd be back soon. He never came. So therefore, I'll build my eschatology from an an apologetic standpoint and say Jesus already came back. Satan's in the lake of fire. Uh, The earth is in perpetual existence. It's going to go on and on and on forever. And evil's going to ebb and flow. There is This is the new heavens and the new earth. No, I will not do that. Thus says the word. This fish is a miracle. And a miracle, by definition, is an act of God that defies reason or replication. This is God's work. This is God's fish. Amen? So we don't need to make excuses for God. I don't need to restructure the Bible to appease harking and barking unbelievers. Fear not, beloved. When Christians attempt to explain away the miracles of God with the theories of men, be it this fish or a literal six-day creation, what they end up doing is lending credit to man's finite processes in theories while they naively deny the authority and the authenticity of the infinite Word of God. Fear not, man. Jonah was literally swallowed by a big old fish. And he remained in the stomach of that big old fish for three days. This is the historic account of God dealing with one man for his purpose. God's purpose. A man living for three days and three nights in a fish? There's questions. Theologians argue, well, did Jonah die and was resurrected? We don't know. Possibly. What does it matter? Does it matter? It could lend to the typology that it points forward to Jesus Christ with. That's fine. But whether he died or not, the fact that he spent three days and three nights in this, the belly of this great fish is no more spectacular than Jesus calling a dead man out of a grave who was rotting for four days. It's no more spectacular than God saying, let there be light, and there was light. So though I explain that, I won't explain on the other end. That there's fish out there that really swallow men. And they look like they had bleach poured on them and all this type of nonsense. Who cares? The Bible says it. This is what happened. So now, after that tirade, (laughs) 
The man who ignored the word of God, the man who ignored the call of God, the man who ignored a reminder from a pagan captain of the ship to call on his God, now finally prays. He prays. And how often do we, beloved, as children of God, on the run from God, fail to pray? Until what? Crisis sets in because of his mercy. This is the merciful hand of God. You see, Jonah realized he was about to die. He was about to die. And at first he ignorantly says, just throw me in, throw me in the water. But now that he's truly in the grip of death and will no way survive in the middle of the med, if he was in the middle of the med, it doesn't matter if he was 10 miles out, he's going to be consumed by the med. Now he cries out to God. Now, the sea is a raging place and the sea is to be greatly respected. I just talked to a surfer buddy of mine who surfed around the world. He says, I have a great respect for the ocean. Great respect. Junior read from Psalm 107 this morning. Listen to what it says. The Bible depicts oftentimes the ocean as being fierce and chaotic and and, and life-threatening. Verse 23, Psalm 107. Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they have seen the works of the Lord and His wonders in the deep. For He spoke and raised up a stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They rose to the heavens. They went down to the depths. Their soul melted away in their misery. They reeled and staggered like a drunken man and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. He brought them out of their distress. He caused the storm to be still so that the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad because they were quiet. So he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness. It's mercy. Mercy. Beloved, God answers his children's cries of distress. God answers his children's cries of distress. Jonah was conscious in the fish long enough to realize that God saved him from drowning. And during that period, or perhaps when he fell in and out of consciousness, whatever the case was, Jonah prays. And chapter 2 is what he said. Chapter 2 is that prayer. So it's very important, beloved. When you read this prayer, keep in mind that when Jonah refers to the distress of the past, he means his time spent in the water, not his time spent in the fish. Okay? It's his time spent in the water that was the distress. So the water represents the threat of judgment and death. The fish, on the other hand, represents refuge and salvation. That's the picture you want to have in your mind. So the cry of distress is past tense, having been in the water. The voice of confidence and thanks is present while in the fish. So in response to God's judgment upon Jonah, he forms this psalm of thanksgiving, and that's what we're looking at. The literary structure being typical of any thanksgiving psalm. 
which is consistent with the Old Testament-style narrative. And, and, and right here, this story is interrupted with a poetic interlude. And scholars call this a declarative psalm of praise that comes from one individual. A declarative psalm of praise. In other words, it's a type of psalm that, that arises out of tremendous experience of deliverance. And it maintains a pattern of making reference to that deliverance, which we shall she. Which we, we, we shall she. <laughs> Along with the setting forth of certain vows. And then finally, at the end, there's this great praise to God because of that deliverance. And that's what's being communicated to us here. And you see it in your outline. Title of the message, Afflictions That Lead to Praise. Was that the introduction? This is my first time here. (laughs) Yes. So here you have your four points in this prayer. You have the plea for rescue in verses 1 and 2. You have the recall of crisis in verses 3 and 6. A remembrance of his deliverance in verses 6 and 7. And then finally you see a praise for salvation to wrap the whole thing up. So let's look at the prayer. First, the plea for rescue, verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. Do you look at God like that? Personally? Do you say, you know, the Lord? We say that, yes, but in times like this, in prayer, do you call him my Lord? He's your Lord. If you're in Christ, you're his and he's yours. This is my Lord. He, he, he prayed to the Lord, his God, from the stomach of the fish. And he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. So Jonah's distress here was the fruit of his guilt and the fruit of his disobedience, rejecting God's call and his command. He's in the depth of Sheol. Sheol means the place of death, the realm of the dead. And in the midst of such peril, the the Lord heard his voice. The Lord hears this man. Jonah was guilty because of his rebellion. He was also guilty of hypocrisy. Now, if you remember, in the midst of the storm, when he was up on deck, they asked him, actually he was in the lower parts, and the men came from the upper deck, and they asked him, and they said, Who are you? Where do you come from? Call on your God. Who do you serve? And he answered, I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. That's my God. The one true God. And had he truly feared the one true God, the one true Lord, the creator of the universe, he never would have stepped away from his will, would he? We can say we believe all day. But you see, the theology of Jonah's head was not the theology of Jonah's heart. So we can say what we will. The proof comes out of the heart. So here he was. In the midst of God's judgment, theology in his head, no theology coming forth from his heart, but how often are we like this, beloved? (sighs) Amen? 
failing to fulfill our call. Husbands failing to love their wives as we ought. Wives failing to respect their husbands. Children failing to obey their parents. We're guilty oftentimes of the sin of neglect. To know to do right and not to do it, that too is sin. And then we are so capable to manipulate people, persons, situations because our hearts can oftentimes deceive ourselves. But notice, in his mercy, okay? Notice where Jonah is. And yet, in the mercy of God, he answers Jonah in spite of his guilt. He answers Jonah in spite of God's own judgment. And beloved, if you're a child of God in a time of distress, calling out for mercy with a true repentant heart, God answers in spite of our guilt and in spite of his judgment. That's mercy. That's grace. That was his distress. Are you distressed this morning? Are you here distressed? And I want to say this. If your disobedience, for which only God and you know, if your disobedience is the cause of your distress, I say this. Repent before the Lord who saved you. Repent before Almighty God with a sorrow that is godly. Cry out to the Lord. He will answer you in spite of your guilt this very morning but not with a sorrow that's worldly, beloved. And a worldly sorrow is just, yeah, I got caught and the consequences stink. Yes, I'm sorry, Dad. Sorry, Mama. For what? For what? Because I've sinned against God. 2 Corinthians 7, also verse 10. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without what, beloved? Without regret leading to salvation. So God answers his legitimate children when they cry to him in times of distress. Here we have true brokenness. Here's a broken man of God. So there is his plea for rescue. Next, notice the recall of crisis. Verse 3. Here's Jonah praying to God, for you had cast me into the deep into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me, and your breakers and your billows passed over me. So Jonah recalls now the primary cause of his affliction. What was the secondary cause of his affliction? We see earlier in the account of Jonah chapter 1 that the men threw him overboard. That was secondary causation. Primary causation is right here. You had cast me into the deep, he says to God. You see, it was God. Jonah had reached the extremities of running from God. And here now he remembers sinking under the currents that had engulfed him. So, verse 4, I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again towards your holy temple. You know what? Jonah might thought for a moment that he was out of the sight of God, but Jonah was no more outside of the sight of God while he was sinking in the sea than he was outside the sights of God when he was on the run away from God. Right? What did the psalmist say in Psalm 139? Where can I go from your spirit? 
Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there, your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. And here's merciful God with an outstretched arm reaching, grabbing hold to one of his own who's on the run, bringing forth judgment upon him in order to bring him to a place of repentance and safety. Safety. God will stop you and crush you if you're his to spare you if that be his will. So floundering in the sea here, his initial thought is that he's completely been rejected by God. Having attempted to flee to Tarshish from the presence of Almighty God, he finds himself in his mind destined now to Sheol, which elicits elicits this confession here. Nevertheless, I will look again towards your holy temple. What do the temple represent for the Jews? The place of prayer, the place of sacrifice, sacrificial system laid up where the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies on behalf of God's people as he first atoned for his sins and then he would go and atone for the sins of the people, granting access through by way of the mercy seat to Almighty God, you see. Relationship. Jonah's determined to pray in spite of of his apparent banishment. And when you're on the, run lo- on the run long enough, this is how you will feel. When you're a child of God and you're on the run like this, you're full of despair and you're under the chastening hand of God, you may think like Jonah, I'm headed for Sheol. He doesn't see me, he doesn't know me. Not true. Verse 5, water encompassed me to the point of what? Death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. So Jonah now continues the description begun in verse 3 of sinking downward in the deep. Surrounded on every side. He's a prisoner of the sea. He's entangled in seaweed. You ever been caught up in kelp? A little frightening, isn't it? To be tied up in the water? He's dying. He's entangled. When you run the way of the world, when you go the way of the world, and you're a blood-bought Christian, and you're out there with the world, you're looking like the world, and you're acting like the world, and no one can tell you're a believer, and God's hand is upon you, you can sense and feel that you're tangled up in this world, you're tangled up in the system, and it's not right, and it don't feel right because you're a child of God. Sinking down. Down. But again, beloved, again, in his mercy, God answers us and God delivers us from the most impossible circumstances, does he not? And here he is with one of his own. He is in an an impossible situation. What way is there out of a fish? What way is there out of sinking to the bottom of the ocean? This is his thought. Now he's in the fish remembering this. He's been spared. I, 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 don't, I don't imagine he's thinking that he's going to be choked up on a shore anytime soon. And that leads us to the remembrance of deliverance, verse 6. I descended to the roots of the mountains. 
the earth with, it, with its bars around me forever. But you have brought up my life from the what? From the pit, O oh Lord, my God. My God. The roots of the mountains. Here it is, parallel to pit. And pit is synonymous for Sheol. So again, is a, this is a reference to the place of the dead with its bars surrounding. Think of bars being slammed down over a man. This depicts death. It's picturing an, an underworld of having a gate that's bolted shut. There's no way out. You're done. There's no escaping. To be imprisoned there forever. Notice next. But, but, you have brought up my life from the pit, O oh Lord my God. Deliverance. Sinking, entangled with seaweed, sinking to the lower parts of the ocean. He's going to die. And yet, God delivers him. So God in his ever-abounding grace answers us not a second too late, does he? Nor does he answer us a second too soon. It's always right on time. That's the mercy of God. That's the grace of God. So Jonah understood that he was experiencing the justice of God as a consequence of his sinful rebellion. But yet God heard his prayer for mercy, sparing his life, granting him the free, undeserving gift of deliverance. Verse 7, While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you in your holy temple. In other words, when I felt my life slipping away, when I was growing faint, when I was on the brink of passing out for lack of oxygen, here I was dying. And where did his thoughts turn? To God. To his Lord. Where his prayers reach God's heavenly sanctuary. Now, how often is it that God's own children attempt to run from his presence? They try until he brings affliction to awaken them, right? They just run and run and run. What's going to stop them? A good beating, right? That's what the psalmist said. Psalm 119, verse 67. He said this, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now what? I keep your word. But now I keep your word. So the psalmist confesses that the, dis the discipline of the Lord here has changed his very life. I used to, past tense, go astray. But God afflicted me. So when Jonah cried out to God, he didn't say, Oh God, please put me in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights. I'm sinking, Lord. Please send a big fish to swallow me up. You think he prayed that? Highly unlikely. He probably prayed something like we would. Lord, whatever it takes, if you get me out of this situation, I promise you, I vow to you, I'll never do this again, and I promise to go forth and do that which I promised in the past anyway. Just get me on dry land. Amen? Just get me on dry land. Just get me out of this jail cell. Just get me out of this relationship. Just get me out of this or get me out of that. And I promise, I promise, I promise. Now, did God pluck him out of the water and take him and place him on dry land? Not directly. 
But God's answers to his prayers and his cries for mercy came in stages, didn't they? And oftentimes that's what God does with us. So the belly of the fish might not seem like salvation, but it was. This was God's means to his end, this fish. And oftentimes God will answer our prayers in stages. Not all of which, by the way, beloved, are comfortable. God's answers to our prayers of deliverance, oftentimes in the process of getting us where he wants us to be, are not comfortable for us. No more than they were comfortable for Jonah. So finally now, not finally in the sermon, but finally in this last point here, here's the praise for salvation. (laughs) Verse 8. Just don't want anybody closing up Bibles and all that stuff. As soon as you say, and now finally you hear this. Verse 8. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. The Hebrew word for vain idols literally means empty vanities. Empty vanities. You know why the mirror with the lights around it in your bathroom is called a vanity? Leads to emptiness. Pride. Because you begin to worship what's in it. Yourself. Amen? Those who regard empty vanities forsake their faithfulness. Your translation may say forsake their mercy. The word is chased, and it literally means unfailing or steadfast love. It's an an expression that's referring to God himself, the one who is our mercy, the one who is our faithfulness. So we forsake God. John Calvin said this, quoted this a couple weeks ago, quote, Empty vanities are all the inventions with which men deceive themselves. Men deceive themselves in their empty vanities, their finite thinking. So Jonah here expresses the fact that those who worship idols, any other God but the one true God, Almighty God, Jesus Christ, His Son, will discover in times of trouble how impotent their gods are. You know, like the gods of AA. Time of trouble. Call on Bob the doorknob because that's who you made your god. Right? And then he closes the prayer with the theme of it all. Verse 9. But I, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving, that that which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from who? From the Lord. It's not because, well, I just decided to follow Jesus. No, salvation is of the Lord. Authored by Him, provided by Him, enabling you to believe and to follow. So having experienced now God's power to rescue from the jaws of death, and that's where he was, he responds with deep gratitude. Promises to offer sacrifice and fulfill his vows to the Lord, finally. And then Jonah brings his psalm of thanks 
to a climax, and that is simply, again, it's the theme of the book. Salvation is from the Lord. You see, thanksgiving like this, thanksgiving like this is for sinners who are saved. Everybody's a sinner, but not all sinners are saved. Thanksgiving like this is for sinners who are saved. Recipients of salvation, which is from who? From the Lord. From the Lord. It's the theme of the whole Bible, not just Jonah. But no, no words can better summarize the grace of God in and through Christ Jesus. Salvation is of the Lord. So God saves us, and God answers us when we cry out for mercy, first for His glory. And when He does this, He begins to win our undivided loyalty and thanks, you see. You know when I'm the most miserable as a Christian? Some mornings I wake up, I put my feet on the floor, and I, and, and, I, and I feel like a grump. No one else is awake. I haven't even said a word to anyone, and no one said anything to me. I just have an attitude. And I'm perplexed about this on my way to freshen up. I'm like, what is it? And any time throughout the day that I have that feeling, I come to realize through the ministry of the Holy Spirit that I'm not thankful first and foremost, for my salvation. I'm thankful, yes, deep down. But at that moment, it's just not all connecting, you see. So it's easy to cop an attitude. And then verse 10. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto dry land. as he will command Jonah a second time to go to Nineveh, boy. And he will hit the ground (laughs) a-running. And he will get there. Now, ironically, if you think about this, the very thing that fills Jonah's heart with thanksgiving when he's in the belly of the fish, the fact that salvation is from the Lord, right? Salvation is from the Lord. God, you saved me. I'm a Christian, Right? It's the very same thing that fills Jonah with anger in the final chapter of Jonah, that God saves the Ninevites. Salvation of the Lord is of the Lord, so long as I'm just looking at myself, as soon as he saves those Ninevites, man, forget it. I hate those people. Do you know what those people do, God? Do you know what they worship? Do you know what they've done to our people, your covenant people, Israel? cutting our heads off and impaling us upon stakes and burying us alive and killing our women and children or killing our men and our children and enslaving our wives. Lord, do you know who you're dealing with here? Yes, I know. Salvation's of the Lord. You know, just because we're thankful today does not mean we will be thankful tomorrow. Just because we're all thankful here together, our little family, rejoicing in our salvation, this afternoon at 3.30 or 4 o'clock, when your wife gives you an attitude or you give your wife an attitude, all of a sudden you lose this thankfulness. Right? Come on, somebody, be truthful. As real as that is, remember this. That's why we need Jesus. 
This is why we need Jesus. He died, beloved. If you're a child of God, if you're truly born again, you're covered by the blood of the Lamb, He died for all of our sins. Every sin, including the sin of ingratitude. You need Christ. Moment by moment, day by day. So, as a blood-bought sinner having the resident presence of God the Holy Spirit, we now have the capacity to grow daily in gratitude. Thankful. As the Holy Spirit teaches us to be thankful in the midst of adversity, just like our brother Jonah, because of the grace we have in Christ Jesus. And now to close. Jonah's experience in this passage is a typical representation of the accomplishment of our redemption through Jesus Christ our Lord. During the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, the hypocritical religious hierarchy, the Pharisees, they came to Jesus and they said this, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Make the stars dance for us or something. Prove your Messiahship. Right? That's basically what they were saying. But Jesus answered them and he said this, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh, they will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So Jesus explains Jonah is a type of himself. This is typology. A type of Christ. And he compares himself to Jonah in two respects. Number one, as Jonah was entombed in a fish for three days and three nights, so too would Jesus Christ be entombed in a grave for three days and three nights. And as Jonah was a preacher of repentance to the Ninevites, so too one greater than Jonah came preaching out of the wilderness saying, Repent! And believe what, beloved? In the gospel. In the gospel. The author of the faith, the fulfillment of the faith, the finisher of our faith, one greater than Jonah. Jonah was a type. Jesus is the anti-type. So Jonah was swallowed up by the sea of God's raging wrath against Jonah. Jesus was swallowed up in the sea of God's unmitigated wrath against sin. Slain is the very object of God's fury against sin. Jesus bore the wrath of the Father. On behalf of many. Crucified. As our substitute substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ on Calvary for many, atoning for the sins of many. And those many for whom he atoned would indeed and will indeed come to believe, beloved. 
So with the awareness of God's wrath upon him, Jonah calls out for mercy. Notice, remember what he said, I will look again toward your holy temple. That's what he cried. You see, Jonah looked towards God's temple, that place of the mercy seat, remember? Sprinkled with blood, the place of sacrifice, the place of atonement. It was this mercy seat, sprinkled with blood, the blood of the lamb, for which God said to Moses, at the mercy seat, I will commune with you. Relationship. Communion. No man, no woman has a relationship with God. I don't care how much they claim to be spiritual. Outside of the finished work in Jesus Christ and his atoning work on the cross, you must be covered by the blood of the Lamb in order to have communion with God the Father. Because if you think you have communion with God the Father and you're not in Jesus Christ alone and you don't believe that Christ is the only way, you don't have God. Amen? It's through the shed blood of Jesus Christ his atonement that permits us to commune with God, for us to be able to call out to God and say, my God, my Lord, Abba, Father, my Papa, right? Only through Christ, who bore God's raging wrath, his sea of wrath. And then, after lying in the grave for three days, he burst forth just as Jonah was vomited out of the mouth and the stomach of the fish. The belly of the fish. Jesus came out of the belly of the tomb victoriously. Victor. And Jesus was raised, beloved, not for our justification. Jesus didn't raise up the, from the grave to justify you. He rose up from the grave because of justification. Because we were justified. He, he raised up because of our justification, which was accomplished by his sacrifice on the cross. Calvary. Therefore, you have access to the throne of grace through the finished work of the Son. Allowing sinners for whom he died, for whom he chose in eternity past to call out in their appointed time, in their appointed hour of desperation and say like the the tax collector of Luke 18, what did he say? Who, by the way, would not even look to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Who, according to God's grace and the word of God, went down to his house, what? Justified. Declared free from all blame. Sin removed as far as the east is from the west. That's called expiation. And the Old Testament type of expiation, sins being removed, was the goat that was released into the wilderness. Thanksgiving, like this psalm of thanksgiving, is for sinners who are saved. Saved. Salvation's from the Lord. So call on the Lord this morning with confidence for his mercy and his grace, with a repentant heart from your despair. If you're in the place that Jonah was in, disobedient rebellion, call on him today. And in spite of your sin, and in spite of of his justice, because of that godly sorrow which was initiated by him in the first place, he will hear you, he will embrace you, and he will carry you on to dry land. Amen? And if you don't know Christ today, you just heard the gospel. So again I say to you, 
repent and believe in the gospel. Turn from your sin, turn from your ways, turn from worshiping yourself and embrace Jesus Christ as who he is, the way, the truth, and the life. Because no man comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ, the Son, and you too shall be saved. Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you for the study of your word and thank you, Lord, for the authority of your word. Thank you, Lord, that many, many years ago, one man, one of your own, who was on the run, did indeed incur your judgment, suffered your judgment, and in the midst of it, when he was finally awakened, in the midst of his despair, his callousness, his coldness, his rebellion, he cried out to the only one who can save him. It's the one who created the seas and the dry land, who sent his son to pay for the sins of Jonah, to pay for the sins of those who will believe, to atone for those sins in order to receive the righteousness for which you demand a man or woman must have placed upon his account as it is ours. May you bless your people today. And may we live in a manner worthy of the calling, encouraging one another to faith and good works, praying for one another, reproving other, one another in love when we need to, so that you're glorified through your people, your church, and that we be edified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.